So uh, peace, peace, and good morning. Uh, this is Cook on Quarantine. I'm here with the prolific, uh, <laughs> the community leader, the, um, the, the advocate for, um, for all things legal matters, for all things community improvement, one of the champions of Brooklyn. I'm not from Brooklyn, so you know, I get <laughs> I got you. I got you. But, uh, you know, Mr. Kenneth Montgomery, thank you, bro. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. And, and some really interesting times that we we dealing with right now. Yeah, yeah. So, what is what is um, quarantine self like? What, what does that look like for you thus far? Um, you know what? I'm I'm kind of um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm in, I feel empowered to be quite honest with you. Um, it, it's weird. I was talking to somebody when this first you know this this health pandemic issue first broke. I used to represent. Um, uh, Tom Frieden, who uh, was a former head of CDC. So I kind of saw this writing on a wall for some time. Me and him had had a conversation maybe about two months ago, and he was really explaining to me what was going on, and he had sent me a bunch of articles. But I, I was talking to a very dear friend, sort of like a brother and a mentor to me, Anthony Rico. Uh, one day, hopefully you get to meet him too, one of the premier attorneys and, and definitely death penalty attorneys in the country. And what I was telling him was that um, I, I feel empowered simply because, you know, this health and economic pandemic has really shed a light on how our history, how we were correct, um, how we were right about this society and the systems that we exist in. Um, it is, it is, um, it, it's an uncomfortable moment because if you have elders or you have people who are predisposed with, with health issues, it's a very scary moment. That, that's nothing to look forward to. But the truth that's being revealed in our society as a result of this, I'm very happy for. I'm happy to be alive, to be a part of it. Um, having that break in your day to day where you get to see the people you care about the most um, is, is, can never be a bad thing, you know, especially if you have young children or, or younger children who are becoming adults and teenagers, um, you, you know, your, your mom, your wife. So that part is, is, you know, it's almost like you're being rewired how to think about how you socialize in this world with yourself and the people most close to you. So I'm hanging in there. My sleep yeah. pattern is off, but I'm Right. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I've, I've heard I've heard people seeing the opportunity in it. And I, you know, just based on what I've followed about you online, I know you're one of these like high capacity people. Like, you know, you know, you not only have your own legal practice, but you're involved in building like, several other things and having your own legal practice. Just from what I know about running businesses is, you know, that's that's like a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of work and it's, it's incredibly difficult right now. I actually just got an email. I'm waiting to hear from the federal courts. Um, you know, it's, it's, what's interesting, what's going on in New York now is, you know, New York is, I don't even know if this is the appropriate word, but it's the epicenter, I guess, what they like to uh, describe it as, where the entire city has been shut down. Um, legally, though, you still have the federal system particularly the Southern District. Um, Eastern District has not made an arrest. There hasn't been a federal arrest in the Eastern District of New York in the last 10 days. Huh. In Southern, they have made it very clear that this means nothing. 
Um, they are going to continue to investigate. They're going to continue with these huge takedowns where they go into minority neighborhoods and take down 20 to 30 to 40 uh, young men, and they haven't stopped. And I just actually got an email this morning where uh, they, they, uh, they've made an arrest of at least three capital eligible, death eligible defendants. So I'm waiting for the court to determine if I have to arraign one of those defendants via Skype uh, this afternoon. Um, we can't visit our clients in the federal system. Uh, they, they've stopped all in-person visits. Um, in Rikers Island, they have, uh, the mayor's office has decided to release some people in state. Most of my clients in state are charged with very serious crimes, um, usually homicide or, or high-level drug cases. But because of the reform, bail reform, Unless you, you know, unless you have violence, you, you're out. Unless you have a parole hold or something like that. But in Rikers right now, they have about 200 um, inmates who have been um, uh, afflicted with the virus. And the, the district attorneys, the local district attorneys, one of them is a very good friend of mine, um, they wrote a letter uh, opposing the release of some of these people. And the chief medical doctor at Rikers Island just wrote a very bright, scathing response to that. Um, and, and what you're really seeing is a collision of all these narratives in the criminal legal system that um, it, it's going to take some time to unwind these things. And there's a lot of dangerous pitfalls that are being established. It's sort of like 9-11. They're using this opportunity to really stamp on certain uh, individual rights and civil rights. So it's a really, really dangerous and, and, and interesting time right now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to make sure I understand that. So. 200 people, um, you said at Rikers Island, or just- 200, 200 that they have um, diagnosed with the virus, yes. Right. Okay. Uh, and, and they anticipate out of those 200, I believe the numbers he said was 20% um, uh, of those are gonna need to be hospitalized, which is gonna increase the, 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 the load that's going on in the hospitals now. Mm -hmm. And out of that, percentage five percent are going to need ventilators as well okay, okay. so and they're trying to contain it but it is something that i knew was you know was eventually going to explode and um the da's are opposing their release they're opposing the release. they don't yes. want them in a the hospital is that what that they don't means? they don't well they don't want them on the street forget the health issue they mm -hmm. they don't care about the health issue they're taking the position of you know what we don't we don't agree with you that these people are worthy of being released in the street. They're dangerous. Um, we want to oppose it. And that goes into a whole nother issue about mass incarceration. Like there's an, some people have the idea that mass incarceration uh, should be re reduced only towards people who are non deemed nonviolent. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. There are plenty of people who have uh, cases of violence. However, um, if you really follow the trail and the risk factors, they still should be uh, included in, in, in addressing why we have this, heel, this huge carceral state in, in, in our society. But that's sort of like taboo. People don't want to get into that. And, um, you know, it's, we're in a very interesting time. I want, I want to talk a little bit about uh, just how I came across you uh, mm -hmm. and uh, get a little bit into your background. I first heard you on the, the tax season podcast with, with tax Stone. Okay. I heard you on premium P mm -hmm. um, before that. And uh, 
you know, the way that you, first I thought like, um, uh, you know, he has, he, he, he's like a, a professional lawyer. The way he talks about politics is going to get him in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you had like, uh, but then I was like, but then I thought it was um, courageous because you just, you just did not hold back any of your um, beliefs about like the, the nature of where, um, you know, just like how, how capitalism is working in the black community, um, what the legal system has done, like mm -hmm. to the black community. And, uh, and so from there, I was looking to hear more from you. I want, it was a voice that I wanted to um, hear more of. And then, uh, as you know, uh, you know, I think tax has been. Yeah, we, we, we actually, we have court this week. Okay. Um, April 2nd, we have court, but it's going to be, it's canceled, essentially. Uh, we were supposed to actually start picking a jury uh, on his, his state murder trial um, charges next week, the 9th. But that's obviously going to get pushed back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, a lot of people that enjoy this podcast, I'm sure, you know, yeah. Right. So it's a very unfortunate situation. It is. It um, is a very unfortunate. One of, one of the most, for me personally, and I've told him several times, um, is, is one of the most difficult cases for me, not because of the subject matter or the facts. I've handled hundreds of murder cases in my career, federal and state, uh, as a prosecutor and a defense attorney, more as a defense attorney. What is difficult for me is seeing a young man with so much promise um, and a voice that was, I think, gauging and bridging people that normally wouldn't have conversations and to now see um, uh, him having to, to, to fight a, a murder case is, is really devastating, to be quite mm -hmm. honest. And all for all parties involved, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, but the, the dividends of that voice, I think like his podcast has started, inspired me to start one. It's wow. how I came across you. Mm. Um, and I saw that uh, Nipsey Hussle follows you on Twitter. Wow. <laughs> That, that kind of bugged me out. Uh, yeah. Someone that told me that. I didn't even... Um, you didn't know? Weird. Had, did, had you met him? Today is the anniversary of his passing. No, I, I've only... You know what's funny? I had heard about him for years because of family and friends who were in the music industry. And mm -hmm. I always respected him, uh, how he carried himself from afar. He, seems to be, he seemed to have been a young man who was unafraid and, and um, was bright. And, and um, he, was, he was just beginning and starting, you know, and um, it, it was really unfortunate and sad uh, what, what happened to him. I actually had got, I had new people on the West Coast early who had, you know, gave me some information about what happened and it was just devastating, you know, what, what happened to him. Yeah, yeah, but that, that building, it's, it's just, there's these people that, um, you know, they, they talk on this certain direction they want to take themselves in the community and, uh, everyone doesn't ascribe to it, but the people that do, I, I kind of feel like we're a part of the same tribe. Yes, like I agree. When, when I heard about, I, want, I, wanted, I wanted you to explain a little bit about, um, I do want to get into your backstory a little mm -hmm. bit more, but I wanted you to talk about uh, Brooklyn Combine. Yeah. The, the, some of the work you were doing to support oh. youth in Brooklyn. Um, that, the Brooklyn Combine is probably one of the most important things that I've ever been a part of in my life and it's one of the things that you know despite me uh participating in high profile uh cases and uh death penalty cases and and serving on death penalty committees and uh being a part of some some things that some a lot of stuff i'm involved with i don't even talk about 
but the Brooklyn Combine to me um, is, is very important. It's important for uh, uh, several reasons. Um, it came together because um, me and one of my closest friends was like a brother, Philip Shung. Um, years before the Brooklyn Combine, we uh, when right about 9-11 actually, uh, I had quit the district attorney's office. Phil had quit Sportswear International and we had decided I was going to start my practice. We were going to start our design company together. But more importantly, we were going to be a part of creating something so that young people who look like us and from the neighborhoods that we had grew up in, which at the time was Bed-Stuy and Brownsville and Brooklyn, um, and then our other partners who we were pulling in who came from other similar cities, but not in Brooklyn, but Newark, um, Detroit, Chicago, we were going to put our heads together and our expertise together and build with the community and, and build something to, to help facilitate the next critical thinkers, young people. And we felt that these young people needed to see us. These young people, we needed to share our journey and our perspective with them so that they can use those, those experiences as tools to help them figure out and navigate their journey. Because what we had realized is not much had changed from when we were growing up to, to now. Um, you know, America became more powerful, more money has been made, um, entertainment has taken hold on a, a certain role in our community. But for the most part, those same challenges and risk factors that many of us had to deal with, young men and women, black and brown, were still there. Um, and in fact, people were commodifying our dysfunction. So it was really uh, us acknowledging that and then trying to do something beyond rhetoric and establish a certain ideology so that it can be built on, it can be reflection, but then there can be hands to the ground, feet to the ground action. And that was the energy of what Brooklyn Combine was about. So we took some of the, the foundations was um, my, my legal experiences, Phil's design experiences in the entertainment and the design world, our brother and partner Mally's design experiences. And then it started, we just started adding on Keith White, um, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Moore, um, uh, you know, Ryan Hobbs, you know, Asin James, all these people, uh, you know, Rudy, uh, Cardi, just all these people just started adding on to, to what we were building. And we wanted to share those professional experiences that we had and our personal experiences and start building with the community. And we had figured out education was the foundation of that. Um, and, and not so much traditional education, because I'm of the belief that we, need, we really need to reassess what education looks like, particularly in, in black and brown neighborhoods, and what it looks like now and what it will look like in the future. And we had quickly identified that education was the way to the entry point. And it was, it was often forgotten, but it was, the, it, it was the liberator for us. You know, we like to think getting money, becoming popular, all, the, all those things of liberation, but it really isn't. It's education. It always has been. And we had these relationships in Brooklyn, starting with um, in Brownsville, where both me and Keith had went to school. And we had a, a great relationship with someone who's like a sister and someone who's in the foxhole and trenches with us, uh, Principal Nadia Lopez. And she allowed us into her school to, to provide a supplemental program on the weekends and during the week. And then the word started spreading and other teachers um, and then CUNY and NYC Teach and other principals and Red Hook and other areas of Brooklyn and, and the city started reaching out to us because of the curriculum 
that we uh, were, were creating and the mentoring relationship that we was establishing. Um, and it, for instance, you know, one of our partners is uh, uh, Felton Brown, who's the creative director for J. Cole. Um, so it started really attracting all these really talented, really bright people who really cared. And it gave them an opportunity to participate and, um, and us to build with. And, and that's really how it, how it started, you know. Nice. And so is, is it like an age group that you work with? Yeah, well, you know, that's a good question. Um, at first, it was middle school kids because what, the, what our experiences told us and what the data was telling us is middle school is where you see kids starting to go off the rails um, and, and where they're no longer cute little kids anymore. They find themselves into our legal system. They find ourselves dealing with really, really serious issues. So it started out with middle school, but then as we started um, doing it, we, you know, we, we literally, it's intergenerational, it's kids in there eight years old who has a, have a hard time sitting still, and it's also college kids, it's kids who dropped out of high school, it's kids who are in um, law school. You know, for a moment, we had a young, great young man, um, Power from, from Wu-Tang, his, his son, uh, Prince, who's in law school right now, he was involved. So it was like, it was intergenerational and it made sense to us. And we didn't really want to put limits on it because the problems that exist in our community are, are uh, multi-dimensional and they're complex. So uh, intergenerational approaches is, is, is one that we really felt that we, um, we felt or it felt organic and, and we gravitated towards it you know we have grandmothers in there we have parents so um we realize that the school provides you uh it's a reflection of your society to be honest with you you know it's a hub of what's going on in your community you you know if you have a community where you have bad things going on eventually it's going to find itself in a school you have good things going on it's going to find itself in the school so um, we welcome that intergenerational approach. So it's really, you know, whoever can, whoever has the capacity to sit and, and, and participate. So we, we try not to put an age, age group on it. I'm, uh, I'm on the San Francisco Board of Education. I was elected in 2016. Yeah, I, I know. I saw that. Yeah. And, and before that, I was, uh, or during that, I was running a coding organization where we taught coding after school um, mm -hmm. summer. And so when you talk about like the issues going on in the school <laughs> and uh, how to build a successful supplemental sort of like, you mm -hmm. know, essentially like a third party yeah. uh, offering that schools didn't have the capacity to do on their own. Like, yep. Trying to integrate coding education across various schools. There's a lot of capacity issues. Yeah. Um, and, and because of um, some of the, you know, I want to get into really like your opinion you partner closely with public schools, it sounds like, and mm -hmm. you're also a parent. Um, uh, you know, what is sort of your commentary opinion on like um, how parents should be thinking about public schools? How do you think about the, the state of public education? So I, I, I have a lot of issues with the public school system. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, from, from a personal standpoint, as a, as a student, from a standpoint as a parent, um, as a student, I never forget, you know, I, I had grew up um, with, some, with some trauma uh, issues growing up uh, in, in, in my community. 
and I was an only child. Uh, school for me was, I loved school uh, because what it was, was it was a doorway to deal with or get away from the traumas that I was dealing with as a, as a young child. So I really, like, I was one of those kids, man. Like, I might have cut up in school, but I was happy to be there, right? Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, from a young age, I realized how powerful a school is in that regard. Um, you have kids who, you know, we look at kids and, and we forget they're just little people. You don't know what they're dealing with. You know, they, they, they can be dealing with some of the most mature scenarios, adult-like scenarios that you have no idea. Then you put them in this rigid uh, system. Most, for me, I went to an underfunded school district. I, I don't know if you're aware. I went to um, John M. Coleman Junior High School, to, which is called 271, but it was a district which in the 70s, the parents had took over, because of racism and other things, they had took over the school system. It's mm -hmm. like plenty of books that, that's written about it. It's the Brownville, Brownsville School Educational System and, and the unions, it was a lot of stuff. So for me, you know, school was very important. Unfortunately, at the time that I went, we went through uh, crack epidemic, AIDS epidemic, heels of the heroin epidemic. And I saw how, you know, it, we were destroyed. And, and the school was almost a doorway to see how we was destroyed. And I'll never forget, um, I was in third grade and uh, I had Miss Berger. I'll never forget Miss Berger. I like Miss Berger. She got me in a lot of trouble. I got a lot of ass whoopings uh, as a result of her telling on me uh -huh. uh, with my mom. Sorry, right? a lot about your ass <laughs> A lot. Like, a lot. Like, I'm working and I look up who's at the back of the classroom. My parents looking at me, you know, cutting up. So, but Miss Berger cared. Um, and I never forget the school had told my mother that they wanted to track me for special education. And Ms. Berger, this, you know, white Jewish teacher who had no relationship to Brownsville other than teaching there, despite she was getting me in trouble, pulled my mother aside and said, yo, don't let them do that to your son. Um, there's a gifted and talented test at Brooklyn College. You should have him tested. So I went from being tracked for special education to now taking this test. I always was a quick test taker. Like I always was just test. I was one of those kids who I could do really well on tests without a lot of um, preparation. Yeah. It was a curse, a gift and a curse. Um, and I, I did really well. And then all of a sudden they wanted to skip me from fourth to sixth and from sixth to eighth. So I went from being track special education in, in a matter of months to gifted and talented. Yeah. I, even as a young kid, I realized, yo, this, this is not right. Because you know what? I was hanging out with the bad kids who was in special education who, Y'all was calling them bad, but these guys are smarter than everybody. Like, they know the schoolwork. They found it to be boring. They didn't care about it. They knew when the teacher was lying to them. They didn't trust the system. And the street and other things was more attractive to them. Mm -hmm. So from a very early experience, I saw that something is wrong with this educational system for young people of color. And then fast forward years later, as a parent, uh, my, my kid, he's in my oldest, our oldest was, uh, uh, had won the, we had won the lottery for him to go to one of these charter schools that was very popular, uh, because what was happening in New York, you, you know, with gentrification, everybody didn't have the, 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 the St. Anne's and the Berkeley's and all these high end schools. They didn't have the capacity 
to to um uh to 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 bring in all these new parents that were making money coming into New York. So what happened was these parents were flocking to certain schools and it, it depended on the leadership of those schools and we had this very popular school, Community Roots Charter School. Our oldest got in and from kindergarten, he, I saw the same thing that they were doing with me 30 years prior or 40 years prior, he was going through the same thing. It didn't matter that his parents were now affluent, both college educated, um, decent professions, community. He was literally being tracked for the same thing uh, we get to the Board of Ed, and the Board of Ed is like, yo, um, nah, this kid is bright. He should be skipped. School wanted him to be left back. Mm -hmm. um, and it made me realize that not much had changed with our school system. Um, and and I, we wanted to do something about that. And we studied what the Panthers had done. We studied what all these Black nationalist groups had done um, at, a, at a different time. And we tried to do our own spin on a, on a lot of that. Do you, uh, what are your thoughts about voting? Oh, man, you're asking me some really interesting questions. Um, I think voting is a tool. It could be a very powerful tool. But I think in, our, in the Black community, we have not matured to understand the power of organization and that in the voting process, Unfortunately, we don't get to have choices like yourself as candidates. Uh, we're not grooming people like you uh, to be in those political places to vote for. What we're breeding is people who are suckers, uh, who, who want to just be a part, who want their seat at the table, and they're willing to leverage their access to the community to get that seat at the table. So, and what's happened is, particularly on a national level, um, we, we just don't understand what's at stake. Like Stokely talked about, Stokely Carmichael talked about how powerful voting could be. But we, you know, as black people, if, if you study history, we should not be beholden to any party. Mm -hmm. You know, listen, obviously the Democratic Party in this modern era, they at least seem to have the talking points that we should be concerned about, or at least our ears open to. Um, but we, I think, are immature about how we go about it. Um, I think we're, we're not producing those courageous, radical, intelligent people who are willing to work and put themselves away from the cause, but really focus on the ideology. And as a result, you know, we have no leadership. You know, I don't think we have leadership in this country in general. And I think this pandemic is, is proof of that there is no leadership in this country. Often what leadership is, political leadership in America is, is leadership for white wealthy people or the white wealthy ruling class. That's what leadership is. You know, whenever you have a, a, a president who, who, who moves more like a kleptocracy and in a pandemic, he's bringing out corporations my pillow or target or this that shows you there's no political leadership for black people here or people who are marginalized that's political leadership to make sure that this current political and economic system continues to shoot money upwards to these people right. um, so so I, I think as black people we haven't matured um politically we ain't, we ain't do our homework mm -hmm. um and and as a result we, we're suffering politically
I'm a big fan of Stokely Carmichael, and I was watching a um, interview he did in Face the Nation, like on YouTube. Mm-hmm. A while I saw ago. that. You saw that? Yeah, I saw that video. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he talked about um, segregation and mm-hmm. integration. And, um, and he was organizing, you know, as you know, uh, like around sheriff's elections in the Deep South to get like black representation. And so mm-hmm. I, and I've seen on your Instagram in the past that you have backed political candidates. Is I have. That you're like, is that something that you um, do very seldomly? Like, have you been, what has been your experience in doing that? Like, are you, you know, believe, it, <laughs> believe it or not, there was a period of my life where people thought that um, mm-hmm. I was someone that they thought um, should be involved in politics as a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, very early, it was I, was I was probably in my 20s, um, 24, 25, um, just out of law school. Um, and I don't know how I feel about that now, because I, I used to wonder, like, what are they seeing in me for them to say that? Um, and because I had so many issues with politicians and voting, um, you know, I didn't know how I feel, but I did know I didn't want to be anybody's politician. Right. Um, so what happened was um, through the combine, and through the voice that we voice that that the combine had established and the platform that we had established and the things that we were doing in the community, um, people from Al Sharpton to um, a bunch of these politicians were reaching out to us because what we were realizing is, you know, it's a hustle for some of these people. So they see new people coming along who are not. Um, who, you know, you don't got anything for me. I, you know, listen, I'm not screwing your women. Um, I don't want what y'all want. I'm, 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 I'm good with what I got. That's dangerous to some, some people that I realize. But they, they saw that we were um, making moves in communities that they were no longer going into, only when there was a problem. So now what happened was, you know, I think where it really started, Ken Thompson was a good friend of, 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 of ours. Um, and he was running for the Brooklyn district attorney position. And for people who follow politics in New York, Charles Hines and the Brooklyn political machine was really powerful. And people, under, people don't understand in Brooklyn, you know, it's a reason why, you know, Brooklyn and Oakland, San Fran area is sort of similar. It has a really rich history of, of black um, activity politically and culturally. And uh, Brooklyn has a lot of Black people. Um, and when you look at it, the churches in central Brooklyn, they kind of control the Democratic Party in this place. You can't really win in, in, in uh, Brooklyn without the Black vote. It's impossible, even with gentrification right now. Mm-hmm. The, the Black presence in Brooklyn is very, very important. So we got up with Ken and we, we uh, in our opinion, told him what, what he needed to do to win. He had the financial prowess to do it where a lot of black men didn't. He also, he was not a part of the, 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 the political structure here in Brooklyn. Um, and that kind of intimidated a lot of people and a lot of people didn't really think he can do it. Mm-hmm. He did it. And people saw his relationships, which was with us and other people. And then when he won, you know, because of, I was a former prosecutor there who had a lot of um, 
some respect and some results that a lot of people uh, paid attention to. He had tapped me to help him figure out who was good for the office and who wasn't. And uh, one of the good decisions that I thought he made was he, he made Eric Gonzalez, who was a very close friend of mine, um, his number two uh, at the office. And it's sort of like Martin Luther King in the Law of Unintended Consequences. He passes and his passing made it possible for now Brooklyn to have uh, a native son who was born in East New York, Brooklyn, to now become the DA of Brooklyn. And then there was other, you know, other uh, politicians who had reached out to us. Adam Abanco, uh, who I think is running against Yvette Clark now. Um, quite a few other uh, politicians had reached out to us. And uh, we, we get to know these people. Um, we don't do it for anything other than um, progressive real change. Um, and uh, that's, that's been the role that we, we've been playing politically. But we really rather have the relationship with the community. You know, if it was up to me, I would love to see an intergenerational approach to politics in our neighborhoods, from education to healthcare to housing to um, you name it, development. And those young people drive the energy in our community so that we're not just um, privy to what Cuomo says or de Blasio says or this politician or this democratic leader. Like we actually have our own agenda. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you too about the agenda. Um, you know, for, for you, what, what you're moving toward and, and sort of the, the, the year ahead, the next two years. And I know you have some, you mentioned some writing, you were doing some more writing at this time. Yeah. Um, also want to talk a little bit about like economic development um, mm -hmm. and how you are uh, sort of approaching that. Like you have your own uh, law practice, which I assume is where maybe most of your, like, you know, that's how you earn. And then that's how I take care of my family. Um, yeah. my, my law practice and design company uh, that my partners, uh, we, we started, Pixot.com um, uh, is our design company. Um, my law practice and then the Brooklyn Combine has a nonprofit where we provide educational solutions and community solutions. But we also have a for-profit where we've invested in some things um, uh, to, to help us uh, remain independent and stand on our own. Um, some of those things uh, have, have been investments in, in, in the cannabis industry. Some of them have been um, us uh, publishing books. Some of it has been us consulting with, with other, um, you know, for-profit companies. Um, so it's, we, we have a lot of pots on the stove. Mm -hmm. I think the ultimate goal is to um, be independent and, and self-determining and to continue to, to, to try to reach out and build with other um, entities in the community so that we can became, we, we could become self-sustaining. Um, you know, from a nonprofit side, I think everyone is aware we would like at some point to have our own school. Um, uh, that, that's something that we're working towards. Um, we would like to, to be a part of a movement and facilitate young people not leaving the community and working for these corporations who, don't, who, who are only concerned about exploiting the community, but <laughs> have the young people coming back to help the, the communities pulsate um, uh, around them and around their elders, um, remove that corporate veil, that, that corporate veil that's, that's there because of politics and other things, 
hopefully be a part of an ideology to remove that so that we can start building self-sustaining um, systems, growing food, um, manufacturing, um, green manufacturing, clean manufacturing, um, have these educational programs and exchange programs where kids from Oakland are uh, aware of the issues that kids from Brooklyn are dealing with and vice versa. And they're coming out with solutions offline, online, and, and really just, you know, th there's a glue that's being applied to, to, to get us together and organize us. There is no organization in our community. There is an organization in America, period, uh, particularly from a labor standpoint, but um, that's a whole nother conversation. But we, we, we're really just trying to um, learn from the past and, and what our elder, elders have done and, and hopefully uh, being a part of something that, that's organic and, 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 and successful in changing the narrative. Yeah, yeah, well, as I hear you explaining it, it, it reminds me of several different things. And I don't want to reduce it to one thing. Mm -hmm. like, it reminds me of like the Garvey movement. It reminds me of the whole economic independence thing that I heard coming out of the Nation of Islam. Um, it reminds me of, uh, you know, Tulsa and Black Wall Street. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. it, but it sounds like from what you're talking about, like the combine is like, a, it's non-religious. No, nope, um, no religion. <laughs> <None>. Political. <laughs> I just want you to know the political. Nah, it's true. Like, listen, like it's like Malcolm said. Like, you know, they don't like you. They don't dislike you because you Muslim or you Christian or you atheist. They dislike uh -huh. you because you black. Right. So it's definitely not religious. We have had some. Like, even during this pandemic, we we um we did a we did a partnership with a, a very powerful Christian church uh, in Brooklyn, uh, uh, CCC and greedy vegan to provide um elderly people with um meals that can build their immune system we're working on another thing now to provide groceries to to those who are who are unable to do so financially and and because of disabilities some of the churches are involved with that there's still some radical thinking churches out there um i, I think in a period of my life where i was really really resistant to religion um but, you know, I take it on a, for me personally, a case-by-case -case basis. But, you know, I, I, I agree. Like, you know, we need all hands on deck. The problems that we have as a community are complex and they're deep. And if we are still looking at them in this binary approach, um, I, think, I think we're going to miss our opportunity to change things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's also, it sounds like a lot of the partnerships are more like trend is a transaction to help advance the community. So, you yep. know, we're not political, but we will work with people who are political to advance our agenda. We're not religious, but we'll work with religious institutions to- Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Our, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, and it sounds like life's work, right? Like, this is not like a- um, there was no, There's no day where, you know, for me personally, like there's no, like, there's no time to sit back and say, yo, look, guys, high fives. Let's, let's give each other high fives and smack each other on the ass. We did a great job. There's, there's no room. There's no place for that. That's, that's not the goal. Um, this work that we're doing, um, we realize that um, we're going to pass this earth, this realm. And while we were here, what seeds did we sow? What relationships did we build so that someone coming along can add on to do an even better, um, more more efficient, progressive job. Um, we, you know, it's, it's a thankless thing. We don't we don't want no props. We're not looking for a PR person to, 
no, we just got to put the work in. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, our, 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 in our passing, you'll get to see what language we spoke to help change things. And, and that, that's my approach. And I think that's most of my partner's approach. Right, right. And so for, um, for what you are, for what you've launched and what you're trying to like move forward, um, you know, how does that translate into the way that you're approaching and sort of being a parent? Like, I don't have kids, right? But mm-hmm. if you have kids in the, in the public school system, just because of how strongly you believe in things, I'm assuming you're like, oh, you got to unlearn that. This is what you should. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge challenge for yeah. me. Um, I, you know, parenting has been one of the most um, rewarding uh, journeys that I've ever been in. It's also very difficult. It's, it's one of those things I try to explain to people, uh, many young parents and people who are thinking about becoming parents. Like, imagine having making the biggest uh, investment in your life into, into something that doesn't necessarily do what you want it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what a parent is. Um, and for me, I, I remember early, I, I think I may have told this story before. It was two things that I wanted to do as a parent. Um, my, my dad had been beaten by this system. Beautiful black person who had just been beaten by the system, this society. And it prevented me from really, me and him from really um, embracing one another. So one of the things that I wanted to do as a parent is I wanted my kids, before I leave the earth, I wanted them to be very well aware of who I was as a human being. Because I think children forget that their parents are people. You know, they're just people. Um, You think your parents, you put them on pedestals or you put them below pedestals, you know, whatever. But they're just people. Um, so I wanted my, my kids to know who I was as a person. But then most importantly, how, how I got there is I never wanted to lie to them. You know what I'm saying? Like I wanted to be, I felt like if I was lying to them or I wasn't living my life in the manner in which I was instructing them, then what am I really doing? So that was kind of like my, my, um, my, my borders as far as being a parent. Now in this world, you know, my job, I think, is to is to hopefully provide them a pathway or a blueprint or a roadmap for them and their 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 other family members of their age group to navigate in this world that is not better. You know, a lot of, a lot of people like to think, oh, this world is a better place for my kids. It's not a better place um, for my children, and they're not going to necessarily have this easier route. So my goal is to at least um, give them the information and provide them with the information or give them a way to f- put as much information in their head to figure out this, this journey because they're going to need it um, in this world. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's been my, my practice. Um, they've been with me um, from day one. You know, at the time we had children, I had, uh, I had been in business for myself uh, 2003. So about, by the time my first kid came around, I had been in business for myself, I believe two years. Mm -hmm. And they've been with me in the combine from day one. Um, I'd like to think they're paying attention. Kids pay attention. They, they listen, but they really pay attention to what you're doing. And I'm hoping that they're paying attention in, in the combine and the legal practice and the design 
and their in the political things that we're involved with in the world so that they can become citizens of the world and of their community and people who are willing to sacrifice and have courage. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I got in an argument on with some young lady online one day <laughs> said that if one of my kids grew up to want to be president like Obama, I would feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I may have could have said it, you know, you don't have a lot of characters on Twitter sometimes to explain certain things, mm-hmm. but she was offended by that. And mm-hmm. I was very serious because I, I would feel like a failure if my kids grew up to want to be the leader of the American empire, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who understood that their journey and their purpose of black radicalism and, and intellectual thought and, 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 and fighting should be preserved in challenging these empires and these systems as opposed to being a part of them. Uh, so, you know, it's a work in progress, you know, still a work in progress. Yeah, my my internet connection went out for a second. Okay. But, um, challenging these systems as opposed to, yeah, going to go, getting along. Nah, we, your your right. job should be the challenge. But imagine if you took blackness out of the American experience or black radical thought out of uh, modern Western world experience. What would we have? We would have no pushback. We provided the pushback. Our experiences provided the pushback. Our adversities provided the pushback. Our successes have provided the pushback. Um, and th- this isn't the time to put our, put our feet up and relax. Like, we have work to do. Mm-hmm. We, we have work to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my overarching um, thing I wanted to get at was, like, is the, are the efforts that you are trying to build with the Brooklyn Combine, do you see it... Um, playing out in your home, right? Because one of the things I wanted to uh, hold up was that, you know, we have a lot of celebrated black leaders that did a lot in the world, but like their kids, they weren't around, they they were out doing stuff in the world, so they weren't around with their their kids. Or or we'll have these debates about, um, you know, should this person represent uh, black leadership if they have like this type of, you know, home life, like, and how do you balance both those things? And so that's that, tough, man. I mean, that, that's a tough, you know, step, Stephen, you, you, um, you know, I don't know really how to do it because uh, I, I, it's not like I saw my parents do it. It's not like I saw elders in my community do it. When I, sometimes when I think back to my community, my America has torn my community apart. So a lot of my energy and a lot of my edge is the anger of dealing with that. And sometimes, you know, you miss your mark, you know, you know, I, I'm the same way all the time. Um, I'm the same way with my children as I am with you, as I am with my clients, as I am with some judge. Um, obviously, the relationship I have with my children is, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a love that drives, you know, what I try to do often is sometimes when I'm coming, I take the time, particularly my oldest, to explain to him, like, listen, I'm doing this not out of trying to embarrass you or to, to be that, that, you know, so much of human relationships is an exhibition of power. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to overpower you. It's coming out uh, through love and through experience because I know what this journey is going to tell. And I know the challenges you're going to have. So a lot of it is being myself, but taking the time to explain a little bit more so that they understand 
Um, but, you know, I'm hoping that they get it because, you know, we, we've had conversations. I, I overhear things sometimes and I, I see it seeping through, you know, ultimately is somewhat is what a, a brother told me. He said, time will tell, you know, time is going to tell. And, right. and I know I have to be consistent. I think yeah. you lose children when you're not, when you're inconsistent and you're not, and you're not committed to your truth. You, you lose them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to, to keep that, that doorway open. We're, we're approaching the top of the hour and I want to let you get back to the rest of your, uh, no, I, I really, I just want to say, I, I, I really appreciate, um, just even having an opportunity to build with you, man. I followed you for a long time as well. And I saw you put your work in, um, and, and you have, you, you know, you have challenges and your, your intellect and your courage, you, you're making moves. And that's very important for people to see that, um, right young people. Right on, right on. Um, I, want, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, if you have a routine. I wanted to ask you about like, you know, like uh, do you start your days a certain way? Um, yeah, I do. Is it? And then, no way that I can do. Book recommendation. A book and music, music recommendation. Those are okay, all right. Um, I definitely start my day off um, that's probably been the most challenging thing about this pandemic is the, your, your grids are off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I usually start my day. Um, my wife may, I don't know. She may have something to say. But I, I think I start my day probably around four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, and it begins with me envisioning my day in my head, like all the things and challenges that I have to deal with. All right. I got this capital case. I have, um, I have to, this brief, I have this research, I got to go to the jails, I got this meeting with this person, that person. And I literally, before I even get out of the bed, I run it through my head. Um, and then when I get up, um, I, immediately, I immediately go to my physical activity that I need to get to. I usually get to the gym between 530, 630, um, work out, um, get my mind right, and then I hit that day. And sometimes once I start, my day don't end until like 10, 11 p.m. Um, people don't understand when you work for yourself, but when you do high level defense work, uh, federal and state, you're never off. Like you're always thinking about, uh, about things, particularly when you work for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have to be very disciplined about who I'm around, what I eat, what I think about, what, what I see and, and, uh, and I put in my head. Um, the conversations that I, I partake in, the conversations that I don't partake in, um, all those things. It's a journey in discipline and commitment. Um, music has been my therapy. I love music. Um, I, I love reading. Um, I'm reading the book that I'm reading now is very telling for this moment. It's by um, Achille Mchimbe. It's called Necropolitics. 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 It's not a, it's not a thick book. Uh, but it's a very insightful book that really explains a lot about our system, which is a, people like to think this is a democracy. This isn't a democracy. This is a colonial democracy. And that colonialism informs everything about this democratic place that we're in and Western culture in general. And it's an incredible book, um, Necropolitics. Um, and Chembe is the author. That's the book that I'm, I'm pretty much wrapping up now. Um, Music-wise, um, I listen to everything, man. Uh, um, I've been listening to a lot of mixes. Flying Lotus has a and, and Gas Lamp Killer. They have these um, 
on SoundCloud. They have these BBC radio mixes that I've been into of late. Um, but I, I'll just show you, let me see, on my, my music uh, thing. I, I, I got a mix. I got an anti-coronavirus apocalypse mix that I've been listening to. Um, and I got everything on here from Subtract and Sanfa uh, to TDE to Sango, uh, Brand Nubian. I got um, some Jamiroquai. I got some Future. I got some uh, Lord Echo. And uh, my daughter has me listening uh, to um, A Boogie. All right, okay. And play Playboy Cardi. I, I, I really, I really get down with the um, <clears throat> that Freddie Gibbs Mad Lib project. Um, mm -hmm. that's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that young kid Gunner. I've been listening to a lot of Doom. There's a, there's a, there's a uh, these collective dudes. Um, Thundercat, MN Design, uh, Flying Lotus. That whole little collective. Okay. Gets super busy. Um. You know, Karoo banging. I've been listening to a lot. Um, uh, you know, I've been, I've been, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a Andre 3000 fan. I'm, a, I'm a, um, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, Smith and Wesson and his family. So I listen to them a lot. I listen to, uh, you know, I, I listen to everything. Jada Kiss is my man. He, he hit me not too long ago. He just put out an album of a, of a, of a brother of mine who died, Ignatius. Uh, I, I listen to everything. Yeah, I actually heard him talk about that on the Ti podcast. Um, he did. Yeah, yeah. I did. I, I, um, I did the eulogy for Ignatius. Um, oh, okay. And me and Kiss had some really. It's funny. I saw him not too long ago, a couple of months ago. He had wanted me to listen to the album, but um, I, I've been listening to a lot of good music, a lot of old mixes. I wasn't really into the whole D Nice thing that everybody was. Oh yeah, uh, I, yeah. It's it's like popular, yeah. It's like popular, you know. what I'm saying there's so many dope musicians out here, but I, I get it, I get it. But I, yeah. I, I I just love good music, man. Mm -hmm. uh, you can uh, stay connected to Mr. Montgomery. He has a podcast called the Brooklyn Combine Podcast. KJMontgomeryLaw.com on Twitter is Esquire Montgomery. At Instagram is at KJMP. LLC. Um, yep, yep. Um, Yo, my youngest was really excited. You had Jerry Rice, man. Like, oh, yeah. that's, 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 yo, that's, a, that's pretty powerful, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, it's, so Jerry's a legend. I doubt that you all think the same politically. But. Now, oh, I'm positive that we, you know, he could play football. <laughs> We had a meeting with the NFL dudes, you know, actually when all that whole uh, Kaepernick, Jay-Z thing broke and people don't realize that NFL, they breed a certain type of um, mentality in these brothers. And it's unfortunate, you know, but, you know, hey, play football. Yeah, he's a nice guy, though. Really, yeah, really, really nice guy. He's been a jerk. You know, he was really kind. So um, I appreciate it for that.